0: Well, this morning we're looking at Matthew 19, uh, verses 1 through 12. Uh, we've had a string of difficult passages, and this one is no, no less difficult. Uh, it might even be the most difficult one, uh, just in terms of the fact that it touches us personally. And so uh, we will definitely pray for God's grace uh, before we begin the sermon It's page number 979 in the Pew Bibles, and again, Matthew chapter 19, and we'll look at verses 1 through 12 today. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would make your word clear to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would both convict us of sin if that is what we need to repent of, but then you would also show us your love and your forgiveness and your grace, and that every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, that there is nothing that can keep us from your grace and your mercy except if we would refuse to return to you in faith. So I pray, God, that you would comfort us this morning with who you are, and that you would move us to live as you've called us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, divorce is uh, always a difficult topic, and as I uh, was thinking about how to start the sermon, I I realized that um, it doesn't really need or require an interesting introduction or an illustration to kind of grab all of our attention. I think the topic just in and of itself is, is, is gripping for all of us. And so my plan uh, this morning is just to simply teach through the passage and, so that we all uh, understand what Jesus is saying here. Uh, then when we're done, I'll, I'll address a few different possible situations um, given what we've learned. And so I also know that this subject is extremely personal. Um, Everyone here has experienced divorce in some way, whether personally or uh, a loved one. And so it cuts down uh, to a real deep part of all of our hearts. Uh, And I don't really know how to spare us from potential uncomfortable feelings that we might feel as we as we walk through this passage, but I trust God. I trust Him that He will use His Word to do what He intends to do with His Word. And, um, and all we need to do is simply look at what it says and, and then trust Him for that. And so that's what we're gonna do right now. Uh, in terms of the book of Matthew, uh, ch- chapter 19 is actually a major t- turning point in the n- entire book uh, of Matthew. We know from the Gospel of John That Jesus travels back and forth between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south several times during his ministry. But what's interesting about Matthew, Mark, and Luke is they all record Jesus with nothing but his Galilean ministry. And they only record one trip to Jerusalem. And that's the trip that he takes to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry uh, to lay down his life on the cross for sinners like you and me. And that's actually the turn that takes place in Matthew chapter 19, where we read this. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, uh, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And so really there's nothing different about Jesus' ministry, except now that He's relocated from Galilee down to Judea, Uh, He's still healing everyone who comes to him. He still has large crowds following him, and he's uh, still being uh, accosted by Pharisees, which is what we see in verse 3, where it reads, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And I think what's interesting about this is it shows us that this issue about divorce is every bit as heated, every bit as gripping uh, to them 2,000 years ago is as, as it is to us now. Uh, no, nothing has really changed. Um, and then Matthew tells us the Pharisees were testing him with this question, which, which makes you wonder, in what way is this question a test? And as always, what the Pharisees are trying to do is they're trying to trap Jesus with a lose-lose question. If Jesus says that it is lawful for one to divorce their wife for any reason, well, then they can just accuse him of being loose with the law, like they already have. Remember, they're accusing him of eating with tax collectors and sinners. They're accusing him of not keeping the Sabbath. And this would just be one more thing that they could accuse him of doing where he's being loose with the law. But the other side of the loose side of this scenario is if he does say it's not lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause they can pit him against the law of Moses. So if we jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is what Moses has to say about divorce. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her in her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and then uh, Moses will go on to describe, you know, exactly how a divorce was supposed to take place back then. But The point I want to make here is that every Pharisee, whether the liberal or conservative, every single Pharisee at this time believed that divorce was okay as long as you gave your wife a certificate of divorce. No one even questioned whether someone even could get a divorce or not. It was just a given that divorce was something that could take place. The more conservative groups, they focused on the word indecency here, And uh, they said a divorce could only take place if the woman did something indecent. And then they all disagreed about what exactly counted as indecent. And then the more liberal groups, what they did is they focused on the line where it says, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. And they basically said that if the the person's wife finds no favor in his eyes, even if she burns his meal, or uh, even if she's not pretty enough for him any longer, then that would constitute legitimate grounds for a divorce. And so, really, what they want to know is where does Jesus line up in this spectrum? But Jesus surprises them completely. Because Jesus answered and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we looked at these verses in depth last week, but just as a review, it's very simple. Uh, Jesus says here that God created human beings, either male or female. And then a marriage is when one male leaves his father and mother and unites into a one flesh union with one female for life. Okay? Okay. And then Jesus goes on to say, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. So that is Jesus' teaching on divorce. So I imagine from our culture, right when, when Jesus says something like this, uh, the questions that tend to percolate up in our culture's heart would be, well, what if what if we're not in love anymore? Uh, what if it's hard? What if it's really hard, Jesus? What if I'm not happy? Would, would God really want me to be miserable for the rest of my life? What if it just feels wrong? Like, What if both of us just know in our heart of hearts that we married the wrong person, Jesus? Would God really want us to be unhappy for the rest of our lives? Jesus' response here is simple. He says, What God has joined together, let not man separate. And so the question really is do we believe our feelings or do we believe God's word? See, we live in a culture where what we feel is more authoritative than God's word. We live in a culture that celebrates and encourages us to do whatever we think will make us happy. Our culture says God would never want me to be unhappy. But scripture actually says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who persecute you. For the sake of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. So, to be honest, there's not much has changed in 2,000 years. In our passage, we see that the Pharisees were just like our culture. They were trying to find ways around God's word so they could do whatever they wanted to do. And Moses said what he said because he knew sinful, unbelieving people would get divorced. And then the Pharisees took what Moses said and they twisted it to justify divorce. Listen to how they respond to Jesus. The Pharisees said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, but because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So the Pharisees' interpretation of what Moses said would be like commanding someone to crash their car so they could use their seatbelt. We put seatbelts in cars to protect people because we know crashes happen. Just like Moses told them how to deal with divorce because he knew in a fallen world divorces would happen. That's why Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce because of your hardness of heart. Because they were sinful and unbelieving. Moses knew they were going to get divorced anyway, so he was making sure it happened in a way that protected the woman and at least tried to keep the man from divorcing whenever and for whatever reason he wanted. But from the beginning, it was not so, Jesus says. From the beginning, it was supposed to be one man, one woman, who become one flesh for life. That is the ideal. Which means divorce is never God's will, and it is always the result of sin. And most divorces happened at this time uh, to clear the way for the man to marry someone else. They reasoned to themselves, okay, well, I would never want to be guilty of adultery because that's the seventh commandment. I don't want to break the seventh commandment, so what I'll do is I'll just divorce my wife first, and then I can marry whoever I want. And Jesus knew that's what the thought pattern was, and so he goes on and says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now this verse is commonly referred to as the exception clause uh, because Jesus does give an exception for when a legitimate divorce can take place. But Jesus' point is actually not the exception. I think we tend to focus on the exception because we, and we're just like the Pharisees, we want to know when is it okay to get a divorce or whether or not my divorce was okay. But for Jesus, the exception here is just an aside. Listen to what he says if we take the exception out. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus is dealing with the person who's trying to avoid adultery by divorcing their spouse. And his point is that even if you get truly and actually and legally divorced, the only thing that can break the one flesh union is... Is if one of you becomes one flesh with someone else. Apart from that happening, even if you are legally and actually and truly divorced, you are still morally obligated to your spouse, and even a legal divorce cannot undo that obligation in God's eyes. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, "'To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord,' Right, so what Paul's doing is he's, he's taking what Jesus had said and, and re-saying it. Uh, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay? So based on what Paul says here, we can imagine many reasons why it might be wise or even preferable To get a divorce or a separation. Abuse. Neglect. Addiction to drugs. Alcohol. Gambling. I mean, who knows? But if we put what Jesus says together with what Paul says, unless someone breaks the one flesh covenant by committing sexual immorality, we are still morally obligated to our spouse even after divorce or separation. Okay, so far then, what we've learned is that what God has joined together, no man should separate, and that even if we get a divorce, as long as one partner has not committed sexual immorality, God's will for us is reconciliation. And that's what's behind what Jesus says in Matthew 5.32. Listen to Matthew 5.32. He says this, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if a Pharisee divorces a woman because he didn't like the way she cooks, Jesus is saying, you're forcing her to commit adultery. Well, you wonder, well, how? How How is that forcing her to commit adultery? Well, because the only thing that can break the one flesh union is sexual immorality. And a woman in that culture would have to get remarried after a divorce out of economic necessity. There was no option for single divorced women in first-century Palestine other than remarriage. So Jesus is setting a really high bar here. And unless unless we see just how high the bar is, the disciples' question that they ask next makes no sense. Because this is what they go on to say. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus, if if there's no escape clause from this thing, it's better not to even get married in the first place. And this is quite something for the disciples to say at this time. When everyone was expected to get married, and when, when almost everyone did get married, Marriage was almost culturally and socially mandatory at the time. And Jesus just made it not worth it. It's better to be the odd duck in that culture who doesn't get married than not to be able to get divorced, is what they're saying. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So the disciples just said, It's better to be single for life than to not be able to get divorced. And Jesus responds by saying, not everyone can receive that, boys. Not everyone can receive this saying that you just said. Not everyone can be celibate. But only those to whom it is given. For, now Jesus goes on to talk about singleness. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So eunuch is someone who's not married because their sex organ does not work properly. Some people are born that way. Some people are made that way. And some choose celibacy, but notice they choose it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus is saying to the disciples is this. You are wrong. You are wrong. It is better to get married. Because celibacy is only for those who can receive it. And unless you've been given a special gift enabling you to choose that life for the sake of the kingdom, it is better to get married. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is be- better to marry than to burn with passion. So the unmarried are called to a level of self-control that most of us would be incapable of. That's the point. And this is why I love the Bible, friends. Because it's just so real. This desire to be with another person is a good desire and a powerful desire. It's so powerful that for most of us, we must marry or we would burn with passion. And and by burn with passion, Paul means we would destroy ourselves with sexual immorality. So that is Jesus' teaching on marriage, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. So just to summarize, marriage is a lifelong one-flesh union between one man and one woman. The only thing that can end the moral obligation we have to each other even after a legal divorce is if one partner breaks the one-flesh covenant by engaging in a new one-flesh union with another person. Choosing not to be married is not really a viable alternative for most people because that is such a high calling that only some are able to receive it. So with the time we have left, let me try and apply this to a few real-life situations. Um, The first kind of person that I have in mind is the person who is unhappy in their marriage and contemplating divorce. This is the person who's entertaining the idea that life would be better with someone else or single. And Jesus wants us to know that his will for us is to remain married and committed to our spouse, and there is no doubt that that is what he is calling us to. He's calling us to reorient our mind and our heart from what the world is telling us And to trust his word instead. So the world tells us our feelings cannot change. And God's word can mean whatever we want it to mean. But the Bible tells tells us actually our feelings can change. And we all know they do all the time. And that God's word actually never changes. The world tells us that happiness is doing whatever I desire. Let your heart be your guide, right? The heart wants what the heart wants. But the Bible tells us that true, lasting peace and joy come from trusting God and letting His Word shape our thoughts and our feelings and our desires. And that when we make His glory and His kingdom and letting our broken, difficult relationship with another sinner become a tool in His hand to show off what He is like, right? That He is faithful, that he laid down his life for us and that his pride submits to him. When we do that, not only will God be glorified, but that is the way to real, deep, and lasting joy. Do you believe him? That's what faith is. Now, it may be that you believe him, but your spouse does not. And there is nothing you can do about that. But when we believe his promises to us in Christ, we are believing. Not only that he will forgive us, but that he will give us what he commands. So if he's commanding us to remain married, he will give us the resources to keep that command. If we are both willing. But if we pushed through an unbiblical divorce so we can find happiness and fulfillment in our own way, That is unbelief. And sure, we might find a more comfortable life, or we may not. There's actually no guarantees. But if we trust God, especially when His will is so very clear like it is on this topic, we can know that in spite of how difficult it might be, even for the rest of our lives, we will have the joy of a clear conscience, and we will be able to rest knowing that He has a reason and a purpose for everything He asks us to do. So here's a few questions to ask ourselves if this is our situation. Am I willing to pick up my cross and follow Jesus and stay committed to someone for the rest of my life who is not the person I thought I married simply because it is the clear will of God?
1: Do I believe God is good and that He is
0: asking me to stay in my marriage for my good and for His glory? Am I willing to be ruled by God's Word through the power of His Spirit or am I trying to wiggle out from underneath God's thumb so I can do whatever I want to do anyway. And if there is real abuse, there's real abuse in in your marriage, then then God actually has a mechanism in place for that. Long before divorce. It would be everything that we've talked about the last several weeks. You, You would go to your spouse and you would tell them their fault. If they refuse to listen, you would bring one or two others along with you. If they still refuse to listen, then you would tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then at that point the church would say, um, "That person is not a believer." But 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 what Jesus is calling us to is a heart that desires His will the desires to see even the abusive spouse reconciled to God and to us, if, if at all possible, and then to see us trust Him that what He has joined together, no man ought to separate. Now, I know that's ideal, and I know that that's not possible in many cases. But as Christians, our desire should be for the ideal. Because what, what God is doing in and through our circumstances, for his kingdom and for his glory, gets gets diminished and confused when we look just like the world. The second person I have in mind is the person who is divorced and not remarried yet. So if there's been no sexual immorality at all, then both are still obligated to each other, And according to Jesus and Paul, both should be seeking to reconcile with each other. And what a picture of the gospel that would be. And if there has been sexual immorality, then the one who is innocent is free to remarry. Because the one who committed sexual immorality is the one who broke the covenant. However, reconciliation would still be possible. They don't have to. Um, Forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean there's no consequences. But if the guilty party is truly repentant and they can earn the trust back, then reconciliation could be an option. However, the one who did commit sexual immorality is not free to remarry since their partner has not broken the covenant. So that person should be bending over backwards to reconcile and to build back trust, if at all possible. Some scholars believe the guilty party is never free to remarry. Others would say the guilty party is free to remarry if they are truly repentant and their previous spouse does get remarried. Uh, My encouragement would be to study this for yourself. Uh, Not so you can find the loophole, but so that you can honor God with your life and with a clear conscience. The other person I have in mind here is the person who's never been married, So Scripture is clear. If we are a Christian, we are only to marry another Christian. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, we only marry in the Lord. So that it would be a sin to marry an unbeliever. And I think by extension, a sin to even date an unbeliever. I'm sorry, all you high school students. Only marry in the Lord. And so what Jesus is saying here is that getting married should not be taken lightly. Right? Because we become one with another person. The, the picture of, of marriage, the best analogy I've ever heard, is in, you have H2O, right? It's hydrogen, which is a gas. You have two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, and that's another gas. You can't even see them. They're just gases. And when they come together, what do they become? Water. They become something completely different than what they were. We've all seen the sand ceremony in a wedding, right? Well, if you were dedicated enough, you could separate all those sands. So that's not really an accurate picture of what a marriage is. It's more like H2O, hydrogen and water, coming together and forming something completely different. And so if you're trying to decide who you should marry, remember, the world values beauty and ability and personality and compatibility and riches, and all those things have their place, I'm not gonna lie. I was attracted to my wife at first because of how she looks. But God values faith and character. So as I stood by her in church and watched her weep, worshiping God, there was something about that that drew me to her infinitely more than what initially attracted me to her. And if you're unmarried and you desire to be married, that is a good desire. And if you find someone with deep faith and strong character who's willing to marry you, that is a very good thing. But being single and footloose and fancy-free and doing whatever I want to do in life is actually not an option for Christians. As Christians, we're either married to our spouse or we are a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. Every Christian is called to be in a committed covenant relationship in marriage or directly to Christ through the church. And the reason is, is because we are all too weak and sinful for any other possibility. The final group I have in mind are those who have been divorced and are now remarried. the question that most people in this situation have is, was my divorce and remarriage a sin? And there's just so many whatabouts that there's just no time uh, to answer that question this morning. I will point out that there is one other legitimate reason for divorce that Jesus does not mention. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says this, he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, if you were abandoned by an unbeliever, then Paul says you are not enslaved to that person any longer, which would mean then that you are free to remarry. Uh, And I can think, I think a case can be made that someone can be an unbeliever even if they still call themselves a Christian. That's why the church is so important in that dynamic. And there are ways of abandoning another person that don't necessarily involve physically leaving the marriage. But that gets real complicated, and every situation is unique. And so I hesitate to say more than that because it's so easy to end up like Pharisees trying to justify our divorce or to figure out whether or not we can get a divorce for any reason we want. As soon as we go down that road, that's, that's usually the motivation. So after looking at Jesus' really high bar for marriage, what comfort is there for someone who's been divorced and who might also be remarried? First, if you've been divorced and remarried, it was a real divorce. And once you are remarried, the new marriage ends your obligation to your previous spouse and you are really truly married now. Which means everything Jesus said so far, applies now to your new marriage. Remember, we, we forget what lies behind, right? We, we press on now to the upward call of Christ Jesus, right? Paul had to forget that he murdered Christians. And he had to press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. Second, if you did sin in getting divorced, and if you did commit adultery when you got remarried, your ongoing marriage is not adultery. It was only adultery the moment you established a new one-flesh union. Third, if you did sin in getting divorced and remarried, the solution is simply to repent and then believe. Believe that you are forgiven. Believe that you're forgiven. Listen to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord commits or counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up, As by the heat of summer I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So this is where I I struggled with this all week long. And what I realized, what I realized is so many times when we, we have something in the past like that that's difficult, What we want to do is we want to figure out how what I did wasn't wrong. And there are cases where where maybe it wasn't wrong. (laughs) But but the reality is it doesn't really make a difference. Because all of us are here now. The past is the past. We can't undo it. We can't put it back together. And no matter what sin we've sinned, the solution is never to go back and to say, well, that really wasn't a sin, or, or if I look at the letter of the law, that somehow maybe what I did was okay. The solution is always to just repent and believe. And that's where, that's where God's mercy and grace is found. That's where His infinite forgiveness is located. So the Apostle Paul, I mentioned him a second ago, right, he murdered Christians, and he wasn't sitting there thinking, well, you know, those people deserved it, or, or maybe somehow that Christian, I murdered that guy, but he was really a bad dude, and so maybe that was, no, he wasn't doing any of that. He, he called himself the foremost of sinners. And here's the beauty about God's grace, and his forgiveness, and his love for sinners. That no matter what is in our past, no matter the wreckage, whether we were at fault, whether we were not at fault, no matter what our past is, no matter what our story is, right now in this moment, you are forgiven. God's love for you never ends. His mercies are new every morning. His forgiveness extends to the far end of forgiveness. Christ came and suffered and died knowing that we were going to do that and knowing that He was going to forgive us. There's just, there's just no reason for regret. Actually, you know what? Let me read something to you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says this about regret. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Right? Because the godly are the ones who, no matter what we realize about ourselves, the depth, depth, depthness of our sin. That's why we can read confessions of sin like this. And even though they are painful to read and uncomfortable, we have to know the truth about ourselves. Because what happens is when we find out how deep our sin goes, and God's grace comes underneath that, that is the beauty of the gospel. That's, that's the beauty of knowing that nothing I've done can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. So lead, godly grief leads to repentance because what we, re, we realize that what we've done broken, broke God's law, and yet he died for me. He died for me. And in, and in discovering that kind of salvation, there's just no regret. So we can, like Paul, forget what lies behind and now press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. As, as always with sermons like this, if you'd like to talk further, please come and see me. Um, in the meantime, let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we pray that you would use this truth to encourage those who have not yet been married to seek wisely a spouse, to encourage those who are free to remarry to seek wisely a spouse, to encourage those in difficult marriages to seek wisely to understand your will and your goodness behind it. And for all of us, God, no matter what we've sinned and how we've sinned, to have godly grief that produces a repentance that brings salvation without regret. God, may we know that kind of love and forgiveness, that no matter what we've done, we can feel free to worship you. In Jesus' name.